Welcome back to all my listeners. I think this is the longest gap I've had between episodes, and I'm going to give you a little bit of behind the scenes as to why. About two weeks ago, I had a wonderful episode lined up for you for the next episode, one with a lot of insight and inspiration from one of the leading executives in the video gaming industry about how to follow your dreams and take your talents to the max. And I was very excited about this episode until the whole war broke out in Israel. And I felt like maybe it was inappropriate to not have an episode about that topic instead. And I kind of ping-ponged back and forth about this in my mind. Well, we finally came to the point yesterday where I was meeting with the guest to record the other episode. And he asked me, should we speak about Israel? And I said to him very candidly, that's the million dollar question. On one hand, I feel like people need other things to focus on too, other areas to strengthen themselves in, or they'll go crazy, right? This podcast was created to help people elevate their lives and for people to share the ideas that have changed their lives in hopes that it will change yours as well. And there's always a benefit in helping others with growth and inspiration in general. One of the wonderful descriptions I like to give about this particular podcast is I aim to sift through the gravel of each of my guests' lives and my own when I speak to you about my own life and give you the diamonds that have been acquired along the way. Dust those diamonds off and share them with you. Now, we know there's always a value in diamonds. On the other hand, when the Jewish people are experiencing such suffering and horror, how could I not speak about that? So in the end, the guest and I kind of ping-ponged the thought back and forth, and we decided to stick to the topic at hand that we had intended to record about, and I would decide as to when to release that episode later as I continued to think about the issue in my mind. Now, when we decided to do this, he used the term evergreen. He said, okay, we'll keep things evergreen. And this is a very good way to describe um, this, kind of, this kind of thing in the industry, right? Um, you try to keep your episodes so that they're always in season, always in bloom. That way, as you get new listeners, which thank God, a lot of you are new listeners. I've gotten a lot of um, new listeners lately in the past couple months. Um, and welcome to all of you. So while it's wonderful to keep the episodes as such that no matter when someone is adopting your podcast as a new thing that they're going to start listening to on your playlist, they can go back and listen to everything and it will be timely no matter when they touch upon it. But when you tie something to a world event or address something that's currently going on in time, it's no longer evergreen, right? It, it, sort, of, um, it sort of makes itself... Um, something that will expire in terms of people's interests. However, eerily, what I thought about is the fact that an episode about how to conceptualize what to do during, during times of Jewish persecution and during times of Jewish suffering and provides a dose of strength and how to deal for that, eerily, that kind of episode is always evergreen, why? Well, we have the famous statement that the Jewish people say on Passover, in every generation, they come to destroy us. And then there's 
the piece of strengthening after that, that God always saves us from their hands. Well, it eerily seems like it's not just every generation anymore. As anti-Semitism is on the rise, it feels like we need these kind of <clears throat> doses of strengthening all the time. And any episode about how to strengthen ourselves during difficult times and what we can do on the ground, no matter where we can be, is always evergreen in many senses. So I was still had to make a decision about this question. I went back and forth between does everyone need a break from the doom and gloom of the war or are people looking for whatever strengthening they can get even if they just listened to a speech of strengthening a few hours ago. And ultimately, what helped push me over the edge to pushing off that other episode to hopefully my next episode with the video gaming industry executive about following your dreams and instead recording an episode about how we as Jews can deal with what's going on right now, the answer came to me in a class I gave to a lovely group of women this past Sunday night uh, who invited me to speak uh, for Rosh Chodesh, for the Jewish holiday where we celebrate the beginning of a new month. And the class that I was giving was actually about the soul, its underpinnings, its journey, the mystical journeys of it, what what the soul actually does and how it interplays with the body and its role and all that, a fascinating class. And one of the pieces that really um, was very, very strong in helping me make this decision to give this topic today is that we explored sources, the women and I during the class, about how the soul needs its own nourishment In other words, just like the body needs nourishment and it needs nourishment at regular intervals, so does our soul need nourishment at regular intervals. What this means is, think about it, we pray three times a day, that's a form of nourishment for our soul, and okay, when, how often do we eat? We have three, the pretty much minimal baseline is we have three meals a day, right? So we give our body that nourishment and we give our soul that nourishment. What that means is, that just like we never say about our body, why is it that I need to eat dinner tonight? I ate dinner last night. I ate dinner three nights ago. I shouldn't need to eat it tonight. We never say that because we know our body gets hungry again. So too for our souls. We need to give our souls constant input of spirituality, of prayer, of learning because our soul craves nourishment just like the body. So even though many of you have already listened to wonderful classes strengthening you at this time, some of you have might have even listened to one of them a few hours ago or said the Psalms, the Tehillim, it doesn't mean that you don't need a dose of strength again right now. And that's what I hope this episode can be. And that's what I hope you can return to. Um, and that's ultimately what pushed me over the edge in deciding to speak about the situation in Israel, but in broader strokes, broader strokes about what we can do during this time to help fight the war. Now, I'm going to be very clear from the outset, I am not going to engage in armchair analysis as I know nothing about the actual situation on the ground, as all of us really know nothing. It's very easy here for my kitchen table in America to try to, you know, to try to to try to lay judgment on things across the world, but it's not right, 
right? Trying to comprehend world affairs across the world is above our pay grade, right? If we're not on the ground, if we're not on the front lines, that is not what we're supposed to be doing, right? So I too do not plan to engage in any of that political discourse. What I want to do is bring chizuk. And the word chizuk translates to like a dose of spiritual strengthening. That's what I aim to do. Again, we can focus in these difficult times on the problem. We could try to stay up to date on everything that's happening at every minute, and we could completely drain ourselves through that. Or we can use our energies to focus instead on the solution. So we will be focusing on the solution. My first sentiments that I want to share with you come from an article I wrote in Judicious last week. Last week... Um, really two weeks ago was the holiday of, of Sukkot. And um, in Jewish tradition, this is a holiday where we're really thinking of the miraculous underpinnings of our nation. As during the holiday, we remember God's miraculous, miraculous protection of our people as they journeyed through the desert on their way towards experiencing their first steps in the Holy Land as a nation, right? The holiday of Sukkot, we're journeying through that desert and we're longing, thirsting for those steps in the Holy Land. And you want to know what? God put in my hands that week, this that week of Sukkot this year, the biography of Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, who was the first chief rabbi of the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. And Rabbi Gorin's book mesmerized me over the holiday as it picks up the story of the Jewish people in Israel thousands of years later as the Jews of the 1930s and 1940s struggled to return to the Holy Land and rebuild their birthright. Rabbi Gorin's tenacious survival as he managed to outrun, outwit, so much danger, destruction, and battles in the early years of the fledgling state of Israel really, really seemed to parallel the history of the Jewish people itself. The accounts are nothing short of incredible, how he and his family left with another group of Jews in Europe during times of peace at that point to venture to the Holy Land penniless. They gave up everything they had to come to Israel penniless. Then, instead of finding a beautiful parcel of land waiting for them where they where they gave money to purchase, they instead found swamp. And they spent years of joyously, he, he focuses on the joyously part, draining miles of swamp land while living with near-constant malaria in order to create those parcels of land to build a community. Then he has the story of the Siege of Jerusalem. Where Rabbi Gorin, um, who was at that point just getting involved in the formation of the army, right? He was um, approached to be the first rabbi of the of the fledgling army. He had to walk around the city under near incessant gunfire. He didn't have a car. He didn't have a phone. He would just walk with his own two feet to deliver everything from messages to matzah for soldiers on Passover. And he sometimes had to do this while reciting vidui. That is the prayer that Jewish people say before they die. He was experiencing so much gunfire around him at certain points that he said the prayer just in case he got shot as he calmly walked to give these messages and matzah, etc. Then there's this story where they got intelligence that the Jordanians were going to um, have a tank invasion of the Jewish portion of Jerusalem on Shabbos morning, of course. And um, they did not have any spare soldiers to dig trenches to stop the tanks. So Rabbi Gorin went around to the various yeshivas that were in Jerusalem at that point, and he recruited yeshiva students 
to break the Sabbath in order to dig the trenches. And he told them, breaking the Sabbath is the most sanctifying thing of the Sabbath you can do in your life because you will be defending the holy city of Jerusalem from destruction and attack. And he thought he could maybe convince a handful of them. He convinced every single one of them he spoke to. While he thought he maybe would have a couple hundred, by the end of it, he ended up with a thousand yeshiva students who dug these trenches and stopped the Jordanian army, whose tanks fell into the newly built trenches. So the book, and this was just the first third of the book, it was replete with stories of bravery and grit as you saw that the lives the early settlers had to lead before the state of Israel was founded, before there was the infrastructure of a real army and government to defend their right to live in the land, was was completely um, living on emuna, living on faith and living on bravery. Page after page. I kept thinking about how far the state of Israel has come, how much stronger, safer, and better off it is now. And then can you imagine, I turned on my phone at the end of the holiday and I discovered what had just happened in Israel, the attacks that had happened over the course of that previous day. And I literally felt like I was turning back the pages of history. What I saw was surreal. What I read couldn't possibly be happening. It was a visceral reminder of how as Jews, it often feels like our progress is a spiral staircase. We gain height, but no ground. Somehow we end up back in the same spot looking over into the abyss of the hatred that exists for us in this world. When they say history repeats itself, it's eerily resonant with our history. All we want to do is live in peace, and yet our enemies just won't permit this to us. There's a well-known description of the Jewish people by the biblical prophet Bilam in the Torah itself, where he says as a prophecy They are a nation that dwells alone and will not be rendered among the nations. This was how the world was meant to run, as painful as it is. These words continue to bounce off the walls of the echo chamber of history as we find ourselves, again, almost holding hands with ancestors that have been oppressed since the beginning of time, Jewish ancestors that have been oppressed since the beginning of time, and seeing ourselves in, in the horror of what is unfolding once again. So what I can tell you is the following. The big picture solution seems clear. We need Mashiach, right? We need the end of days. We need all of this to play out in a way where we come to our ultimate, ultimate destiny, plain and simple. Otherwise, history will keep at its loop. We have to understand this. These are the factory default settings of the world, what we're living in now. This is how God wrote the program, so to speak. Um, I Someone showed me this week, Rabbi Soloveitchik, around 50 years ago, pens a brilliant essay entitled Lessons in Jer- Jewish Survival. And it literally reads like he could have written it last night. He talks about the four lessons that the Jewish people learned from the Persian exile, right? The one where Haman tried to destroy us with the backing of the king, right? These, and again, how many years ago was this? Was that? And here we are again now. The four lessons are as follows. And and as I'm reading them, think about how eerily they resonate with what happens two weekends ago. One, 
The first lesson he writes is the following. Man can become Satan. At any time, the demonic within man can spark. That's, my, that's the second part is my interpretation of that. Any time, the demonic within man can spark and he can act like an animal. Therefore, don't be surprised when this happens, Rabbi Salvechik tries to say. We can't blind ourselves to thinking that we are safe wherever we are because until the exile ends, the final exile ends, we are always at the whim of man turning into animal against us. Number two, Jews are more vulnerable than, than others. Every new movement or event in history has dire possibilities for the Jews. Number three, and this is what I'm going to focus on a little bit more in the solution portion we're about to get to, common destiny unites all Jews. We should be unified. Just as the rest of the world unifies us in how they view us as a people, right? He points out it didn't matter in Nazi Germany if you were religious or assimilated. You are all considered Jews and you are all, therefore, destined with the same destiny, and we need to unite and see our similarities and not our differences. Again, it's about focusing on the solution and not the problem. Where do you give your energy to? If you give your energy to the problem, you will be left at the whim, to the whims of the problem. If you focus your energy on the solution, you will be empowered by the solution, right? Which is, what's the ultimate solution? Turning to God. There's a beautiful, beautiful peace right at the beginning of, I believe it's the Shar Bitachon, that says that if you give your power to other things, God gives you over to that power. So if you think it's the army protecting you, it's not the army, it's God. But if you give your power over to believing in it's just the army, so then God will give you into the hands of the army. But if you believe that it's God and he's the one who brought us into it and he's the one who will take us out of it, then you are at the whim of the Almighty. So we all have to remember that we all share a common destiny and our power, all of us, our power is in God, right? He is the one that will help us. And lesson number four that Rabbi Salavitra writes is, God will intercede whenever total destruction faces the Jewish people. Talk about eerily evergreen. It's amazing how an essay written five decades ago, can sound so on point to current events. But how can we, let's move to the next step here. How can we achieve Mashiach, right? How can we achieve our ultimate destiny in a generation that's, that's much weaker than the ones before it? And, I'm, and it's not me degrading our generation because there are giants before me that have said this. Both the Mishnah and the Talmud suggest that there's a concept of Yerida Sadoros. The generations are, what this means is the generations are spiritually weaker than the ones before it. So if Mashiach didn't come during the times of other horrific situations facing the Jews, when those generations were on a higher level, how could it come now? As an example, it's a chilling story that one of the greatest Rabbanim at the time of the Holocaust, he said in his final speech before he and his students were taken to die, he said Mashiach's about to come. He was so convinced that this was when Mashiach was about to come. And of course, we know it didn't. It didn't come then. And here we are all these years later. The answer is, again, all these years later, where more Jews were killed in one day than the time of the Holocaust. That's the last time so many Jews were killed in one day. 
The answer is that even though we are told that we're weaker, right? We're told this concept of Irida Sedoros, and we know, we really know in our heart of hearts, we lack the grit of the early settlers that I was telling you about in the biography of Rabbi Gorin. And we lack, we have shorter spiritual strength of those Torah giants from Europe before the Holocaust. So what happens? How do we, how do, we do this? How do we get Mashiach to come? The Chavetz Chaim says that yes, we might be shorter of stature, but you want to know what? We are standing on the shoulders of giants. All those giants that came before us, all those giants that fought for the Jewish people spiritually and physically, we're, we're, we're on the shoulders of those giants. And all we need to do is reach a little higher to get Mashiach to come. We don't have to ch- achieve it in our own giant leap. The giants before us created a bigger stride, and we're riding high on top of their shoulders. All of which begs the question, so what now? How can we comfort each other and do anything to improve the situation as we endure attacks on our nation again? As we watch in horror as Israel and everything it stands for is attacked. Is there anything that we can do if we're not in the army, right? If we live so far from the front lines, how can we really help? One of the most chilling statements in the eerily evergreen essay noted above that I want to bring up to you is that Rabbi Selvechik reminds us that in the Talmud, the following statement pertains to the story of Haman when Haman tried to destroy the Jewish people. And the Talmud says, more repentance was done by the handing over of the signet, signet ring between the king Ahasuerus to Haman when he gave him his ring to show that he gave approval for him to destroy the whole Jewish nation. More repentance was done by the handing over of that ring and all the admonitions of all the prophets and all the prophetesses that ever tried to admonish the Jewish people. In other words, unfortunately, it's times of terror, times of horror that bring us together and remind us that there's really, there's really no need for disunity between us. And therefore, one of the things we can do is try to repair any of the separations between us. Everyone, there's a lot of like proactive, um, wonderful things for people to help each other, but we also need the, the, the little bit getting your hands dirty actions of going in and interceding in any interpersonal battles, grudges, or bad will that you have with another, with another member of your brethren and fixing those you know, doing proactive, wonderful things for, for strangers or, or, or for not necessarily strangers, but brothers across the world is wonderful. But what about the bad feeling you have towards your neighbor down the street, right? It's all cosmically one unit, the Jewish people. So if you're having a grudge match with someone or there's someone that you had some battle with and you no longer speak to or you have bad, even just bad will with someone, there's someone you get a bad vibe from in synagogue, right? Try to say good Shabbos to them this week. It could be a small thing. Or if you're bold enough, try to reach out and say, hey, whatever fight we have is stale and moot and ancient history, you know? Or if it's more recent, hey, how can we fix this? How can we fix this? Just opening the dialogue to show that you want to patch up whatever um, acrimony there is, is a giant step forward in helping and helping our entire people 
to bring about that ultimate destiny because we know the second temple was destroyed because there was such a disunity between us. And therefore, the next one can be fixed by improving unity. So too, I heard another brilliant statement in the Talmud. I heard it today in a class that said, there's another statement in the Talmud that David HaMelech, King David, who we know was so righteous and had wrote so many beautiful prayers for the Jewish people, right? His armies suffered casualties because there was Lashon Hara. There was evil speech. There was people saying bad things about each other versus King Ahav, who was a terrible king, uh, uh, you know, not, not a good man, but his armies didn't have the casualties because they were unified, They were a unified army. There wasn't bad speaking among them about each other. Can you imagine that? How unity creates safety, even if the army is being led by a bad king. We need to have the most unity. We need to repair any rifts between us. Now is the time. That is how you can protect our soldiers, and that is how you can be a soldier too. I'm going to give you a story about a small act that's all that's needed often. A lot of times people just want to know that you want to repair it, that you, that, you, that you want things to get better, and then they want to do it too. Here's a beautiful story I heard from Israel that was told in, in the Living Amuna by Rabbi David Ashir several, um, it was from a while back, but it really stuck with me. Basically, there was a woman who went to Israel. Rabbi Shmuel Rosenberg told this story to Living Amuna. Let's say the woman's called Sarah. She went to purchase a cake one Friday afternoon for Shabbos for her family. And let's say the cake was 20 shekel. The woman behind the counter told her, you know what, if you want, you can actually buy two cakes for just 30 shekel. She gave her a deal. Like one cake will cost this. And if you buy a second cake, it'll be like for a bargain. So she said, you know, we really don't need two cakes, but it happens to be my, my brother lives upstairs in this building. His name is Yaakov. Do you mind sending him the second cake? She said, no, no, I know what you're talking about. I know Yaakov. I'll send him the second cake. So she said, great. Now, later that night, Sarah's brother actually came to them for the Sabbath meal. And to her surprise, he didn't mention one word about the the free cake that she had sent him. And she was kind of wondering about it. So at the end of the meal, she said, hey, by the way, did you get that cake? And he said, no, what are you talking about? Now she felt bad because she wondered, did they even deliver the cake? Did I just buy the cake for no reason? Like, what, you know, was this really such a good deal? Everyone was confused. So after the Sabbath was over, she decided to call the bakery. The bakery said, I have no idea what you, what you were talking about. We sent the cake to Yaakov. She called her brother back and, and he figured out the mystery. He said, you know what? You know what must have happened? I have a neighbor who lives in another, a different apartment of the building and his name's also Yaakov. Maybe that she sent the cake to him instead. So he went to go talk to his neighbor about it. And sure enough, he said, did you get a cake on Friday? And he said, oh, did I get a cake on Friday? My sister sent me a cake. And um, he became very emotional as he said this. Um, He said, for two years, we've not spoken. We had a fight and then we just completely went dark. And then all of a sudden she sends me this cake and it gave me such a good feeling just from this gesture that I called my sister and we reconciled. Thank God their relationship was restored. So do you understand what happened? The woman bought the cake for her brother. She said, send this to my brother upstairs, Yaakov. Tell him it's from his sister. The wrong Yaakov was sent the cake and was told the message it was from his sister, who he had a big feud with. And just this gesture of sending the cake after two years of siblings not speaking to each other, it changed everything. The first step 
if I'm telling this to you and you're thinking, ah, but I couldn't forgive this person or that person, I want you to think about why, why can't you forgive them? Could it be that you could understand more and judge less? Could it be that you can pull back a little bit from the judgment angle and widen the panorama to try to see where they were coming from in the initial underpinnings of the fight and see if you're willing to just make a gesture. It could also be that you say, nothing's been resolved between us, but I don't want to fight anymore. Let's do this as a merit for Jews all over the world. Let's do this as a merit for the hostages coming home and for the, and for the army, right? Sometimes you can't reconcile your differences, but when you're part of a nation that dwells alone, you need to be unified. And putting your differences aside could tr- create tremendous unity and tremendous blessings for our whole nation. We know that the proud members of the IDF, more than 350,000 reservists have been called up. And just like when Rabbi Gorin went to the yeshiva students, and each he thought he'd get only a few of them, and each one of them answered the call to duty to dig those trenches over the night of Shabbos. So too, I've heard that every single reservist that's been called up has gone, and then some. People have shown up to their units that were not even called up. And we're not only filled with gratitude for this generation of soldiers who have this confidence and abilities and bravery, right, that's clearly in them from their ancestors, And therefore, we know they too are standing on the shoulders of giants. They too are standing on the shoulders of all the warriors that Rabbi Gorin mentions in his book. And they too are at a higher vantage point because of that. They have the muscle memory of unfortunately knowing that the Jews have been through this before, but they also have the positive muscle memory of knowing we have done this and succeeded before. In my mind's eye, I see every soldier out there on the front lines of Gaza as if their army boots are firmly planted on the soldiers of the giants who came before them. And this lift gives them a better vantage point on so many levels. Jewish Jewish persecution is as old as time, but remember the second half of the statement, Jewish bravery is eternal. May God protect each and every one of our soldiers and swiftly and safely return the Jewish hostages hostages to their home with peace coming quickly to Israel. And may all of you succeed as well in repairing any tensions or any battles or any disunity you have among people in your life as a merit for all of us in winning this ultimate war of bringing us to our ultimate destiny of Mashiach.